Welcome, folks and fam of all walks and talks to the LP Podcast, Literature in Practice, brought to you by Unbound Ed. I'm your host and co-learner, Brandon White, inviting you to listen in as we take a look at texts and practices that encourage student instruction to become more grade-level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful. What do we do with an education system that is fixed for some but broken for many? How do we help people understand this fact? What does a successful combination of approaches to creating a system that works for all look like? The beliefs, practices, and policies common in the United States school system are cultivating inequities in classrooms across the country. Activist, professor, and author Zachary Wright has thoughts about how to recognize, repudiate, and reverse these inequities. He shares these insights as we discuss his book, Dismantling a Broken System, Action to Bridge the Opportunity, Equity, and Justice Gap in American Education. This is the LP. Today's guest is educator and author and all-around good dude. I can vouch for that, Zachary Wright. Um, He is also an assistant professor of practice at Relay. Um, He is a curriculum contributor to the Center for Black Educator Development and a former AP Lit teacher and Philadelphia 76ers fan. We got Brother Zach right in the building. What's going on, good sir? How's it going? Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Go Sixers. (laughs) I I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. Now, before we really hop deep into the uh, text that you spent all that time and energy writing and and, and birthing out into this world, we want to know what was your favorite text as a kid and what is your favorite text as an adult? All right. So I thought about this and like, obviously this is an impossible question. <laughs> so there are two books that I have reread over and over and over again. And I'm going to show off my, or not show off, I'm going to confess my sci-fi nerd part. I have reread two books more than anything else. One is Dune by Frank Herbert, mm. which is right, like a movie and stuff. But I have reread that book at least 10 times. I That book is incredible. And then the other book is called Foundation by Isaac Asimov. I, I like those two a lot. So I kind of go back and forth between like reading to learn and then reading to just like escape and go somewhere else. So the, those are kind of like the types of books I love so much. And what I've noticed is that the books that I read that I was like, this is incredible. Whenever I brought that to my English classroom, they loved it too. Like I would yeah. always start my... I taught 11th and 12th grade English, like all of it, not just AP. But And I would always start with a story, uh, a book of short stories called The Illustrated Man by Ray Yeah, Ray. Yeah, you put me on to that. You put and, me on to that. Yeah. And I would always start with a couple of stories there. And the students were like, whoa, like this is different. This is not some old 19th, 18th century white stuff. This is some crazy sci-fi weirdness that they could relate to as well. And they, when they saw that English when reading was like, you could be weird with it. You could be different with it. They, they, they dug it. So that was always a great way to start the year. Let's make sure we hop into your <laughs> book and we're going to hop into uh, like how your book is structured a bit um, sure. and the things that you uh, dive into. The first question I want to ask is just for you to describe the environment uh, that your book is designed to address. I think m- my book is designed very briefly because it's a short book is designed to demystify 
why the education system in America is so jacked up. And it is also intended to provide examples of folks who are making changes, as well as specific, tangible ways that everyone, families, parents, teachers, students, school leaders, policymakers can make changes in their hyperlocal environments. So essentially what the book is meant to do is say, here's how it works. Here's why that's wrong. And here's how you can make little fixes in your neck of the woods. I'm a big believer in what I call hyperlocal activism. Very often we're, we're waiting for this huge tidal wave of change to come, right? But if we wait for that big wave of change, then like the families and the students who need support and change now are just left waiting. And, and I also believe strongly that one of the roles that I have come to embrace is getting so-called progressive white people who look like me to live up to our lawn signs. Like it's very easy to put the yard sign up, but then not look at the injustice in our own communities. The book is meant to not only inspire, but enable folks to do that. What would you believe are three words or concepts that are routinely used in the text that are really important for somebody to grasp onto uh, in order to navigate through it? I think a couple of concepts are one, education is a commodity. Education mm -hmm. is a commodity that is bought and sold in every stretch of, in, in every facet of American education. Two, American education, along with every other facet of America, is founded upon a racist superstructure that is present, that is omnipresent, that is present everywhere. And three, as I mentioned before, everybody has what I call a stone to throw in the pond to make change. And if everyone throws their little stone, the ripples extend outward and we get that tidal wave of change. So the three major things I think about are one, education is a commodity. It's not a public good and it never has been. And the sooner we face that fact, the sooner we can actually make change to the structure. Two, racism is everywhere. It is, it is impacting how teachers teach, how schools teach, how policy is designed, everything. And the sooner we face and live up to that fact, the sooner we can make uh, policy and in classroom level changes to eradicate that. And three, we all have a small part to play. Yeah, that that reminds me that that uh, stone to throw reminds me of that term that uh, you use in the beginning of this convo and uh, in the book pretty uh, regularly hyperlocal activism, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody has their stone. So hopping back into your book real quick, what would you say? And we kind of talked about this a little bit already, but what would you say is your what would you say is your communication style? And then how does it show up in your text? It's clear and concise. After going to grad school for two master's degrees, I learned that there's only so much you can write before a reader turns their brain off. And there's only so much lingo. Like at some point you're writing for yourself, not for other people. Mm -hmm. What I want my, my writing to be is kind of like how I want my teaching to be. And that is clear, concise, and effective. I am not here to be like a YouTube performative educator. That's not who I am. I teach clearly and I teach concisely and I teach hopefully engagingly. 
That is the goal of the book. The goal of the book is not to win over folks who already agree with me. The goal of the book is not to get millions of followers on whatever social media platform. The goal is to present the realities of the situation in all of their murkiness. You know, the truth doesn't fall into political lines. It doesn't. It's all mixed up. I want this book to be read, used, and to be challenged and not just thrown away as someone who's just preaching to their own wire. With that being said, you know, you, you said you basically said you wrote it like how you teach, right? Or how you, how you aspire to teach. You know, sometimes when we're teaching, we want a lot of, you know, uh, pre-work to take place or pre-learning to take place in order for uh, what we offer as a, a clear and concise <laughs> offering to be even better received. What knowledge may folks need or want to have before they dive into your book? So essentially, the only thing you need to bring with you to this book, and I would say this in my classroom as well, is curiosity. Mm -hmm. Bring with you the curiosity to ask. And that's the best thing in the world. And I remember saying this to my students all the time. I don't care really about the answer. I care about your questions. Because the questions means that you're turned on, your brain is on, and you're curious. So what I want folks to bring to this book is questions and curiosities. Why is my school working the way it is? Why is that school down the road better, quote unquote, or worse, quote unquote? Why do all the white kids seem to go to that school and all the Latinx kids go to that school and all the black kids go to that school? Why is that? What are magnet schools? What are charter schools? What are private schools, right? So it's it's not the information I want folks to come with. It's the questions and the curiosities that I want folks to come to the book with. No doubt. What do you say to somebody who doesn't necessarily see the value of relationships and providing sound instruction? The answer that would be in my head that I probably wouldn't say is, why are you even here? Um, <laughs> like, why are you here? The person in front of you is another person's child. Another person's child, right? Lisa Delpit, other people's children. The other person in front of you is another person's child. Why are you even here if you don't want a relationship with them? If, if, if you're not here for the relationships and you're here for completing the task, then go do data entry somewhere because then you can actually input things and not have to care about it. So that'd be my first thing that I probably wouldn't say, but it would be in my head and I would have to breathe. Uh, what I would say to the person is it actually is going to be more fun, interesting, and effective for you to have a relationship with the child. So it actually is going to make your life easier and more enjoyable to do it. And you're going to be a better teacher for it. So that's kind of what I would say is like, if, if you, like, if you are having a tough day at school every single day, cause these kids are giving you hell, blah, 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 blah. And you don't build a relationship with them. Nothing's going to change. Do you want to have a relationship with them? That's positive. Then do it. And, and there are ways to go about doing it at some level though. If you don't like kids, then just don't teach. Just, just don't do it. Because kids are by design going to make mistakes. That is their job. That's their job is to make mistakes, find the boundaries, push them. That's 
precisely what they are supposed to do. And I can speak from personal experience. I am very glad that I am not held to the choices I made when I was 16 and 17 years old. And if you really want to be a good teacher, like there are good teachers. If you want to be like a great teacher, you need to love kids for all of their craziness, for all of their limitations, for all of their like driving you crazies, all of it. You need to love that in order to be a really great teacher, to be the teacher that the kids run to be in your classroom. So like, that's what you gotta be. And if you don't like kids, just please go find something else to do. Can you explain or say more about um, why why you feel like you feel like teacher preparation programs are good but not complete? Yeah, there are a couple of reasons there. One is the vast majority of our traditional teacher programs are located within the four-year college and university and you're an education major. And very often you'll have the minor in whatever you're going to specialize in teaching. And what the, the responses to those programs, and, and I can speak to the alternate route program that I went through as a teacher that was at a traditional four-year school, was that it is heavy on the theory, heavy on the theoretical pedagogy, and you walk out of there not knowing how to teach a lick. You walk out of there knowing how to quote Vygotsky and Piaget and Dewey and all the folks. And then when you stand in your classroom, you have no idea how to get your kids' attention. You have no idea how to give directions. You essentially know what teaching is, but you have no idea how to do it. And it's really important to have both. I'm not saying we need to get rid of theory. We need to expand the theory to include more theories than just white white men. But you do need a theoretical framework for things about why things work. But we also need to know how to actually do it. What we really need is universal teacher residencies across the country. I think about my my wife. She's a, a critical care nurse in the ICU here in Camden, mm-hmm. uh, New Jersey. She went to nursing school, right? And then she had like at least a year of not being the lead nurse, Right, like mm-hmm. walking around and shadowing and learning before she had her patient in this country. And again, I'll speak to my 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 experience. I, I passed the praxis test, walked into the school district, showed them that I passed the test. They said, "Great, here's your classroom." How is that not a setup? How mm-hmm. is that teacher one not going to do violence to their kids? How is that teacher going to feel any kind of success? And then. How is that teacher not going to leave out in two years? We need a universal teacher residency program wherein for a full year, that teacher has a mentor teacher at a school. They are there every day and they have a gradual on-ramp going from first observing to then leaving do nows and mini lessons and then having like their full caseload by the end. We don't view education that way. We view education as you can teach, go teach. And there is... If you really stop and think about that, that's insane and makes absolutely no sense. So teacher prep programs need to do two things. One, need to expand to ensure that we're doing theory and practice. And we need teacher residency programs that ensure that a teacher's first day teaching is not actually their first day teaching. (laughs) Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. 
you talk about, you say, quote, that the unproductive and unnecessary turf wars between educational camps, such as unions, charter schools, and educational reformers uh, causes a lot of problems. Um, what makes them unnecessary turf wars? And what would you say are the instructional casualties of those turf wars? Yeah, they're not necessary because they're not about kids. Uh, mm. They're not necessary because they don't have at their center the guiding North Star question of, is this good for kids? What they have instead is, is this good for fill in the blank entity? Is this good for teachers unions? Is this good for politicians? That's what they're about. The impact is really the missed opportunity of what could be had if these powerful entities came together. So for instance, instead of so-called school choice advocates and so-called teacher union advocates fighting each other, what they could say is we're going to come together and demand a federal constitutional amendment to a quality education because we don't have one. They could come together and say we demand a tax on the top 0.1% of Americans to fully fund every school in this country. But instead, what they fight over is charter moratoriums, or they fight over performance pay metrics. They fight over these things. And it helps no one. It helps no one. And, and, and mm -hmm. what I think is really lost is the understanding, and this is where it comes from the beginning, is that everything is a commodity in American education. So very often you'll have school choice folks saying choice for everybody. And then you'll have so-called traditional public school folks saying you're trying to privatize it. But what's underlying all that fact is that it's all for sale. Um, everyone uses school choice either through tuition payments, test prep, or real estate yep. or charter school applications. Once we realize the universality of choice for the privilege in all forms, then we realize that undergirding all the injustice that these folks fight about is that it is racist and classist. And as soon as we realize that actually the rich get to buy access to education in all forms, then we can actually address that issue. Everything else is turf war and it has nothing to do with kids. Next question I want to ask you, Speaking of uh, commodification, you describe a couple of strengths and weaknesses for, I think it was like about three or four funding models. You said the professional judgment one, the successful schools model, the advanced statistical model, and the adequate funding model. Which do you believe, which of those models do you believe lends itself most to improving teaching and learning? Sure. So again, this is, I really want to shout out like the financing public schools. Like this is where a lot of that information comes in um, and really does it in a way that is, is instructive and clear. So essentially the professional judgment model is what, if you went up to a bunch of teachers who have been there for 20 or 30 years and you said, how much per student does a effective school need? And they would give you this number. And that's a useful number, but it's an incomplete number because it's based upon whatever biases they have, based upon where they teach. If you look at the successful schools model, you look at that school in that district that is like 
killing it and does it and, and has killed it for years. Very often it's in like the wealthiest area. And you say, well, how much do they get per year per student? And what I like to do is look at those two numbers, compare them and choose the one that's higher and say, that's the one we're going with. And then what you do is you now have your baseline X. You say every student gets X. And then what you do with that is, and a lot of of states do this, you have categorization add-ons. So essentially every student gets X, but every student who is living in poverty gets X plus 1%. Every student that is learning English as a second language gets X plus 1%, essentially. So you are actually adjusting these things. One thing that is never done that I think would be very interesting, although not a panacea by any means, is there's the ACE test score, the adverse childhood experience. And anything usually upwards of four is, is, is significant trauma. I would also factor that in because if a student is living with significant trauma and living with perpetual fight or flight, they literally cannot learn, right? Their brain literally cannot learn. So I would have that be another supplementary bucket. So that essentially is where I would dive into it. So when we think about funding models, there are two ways I like to think about. One is like the wonky nuts and bolts way about funding models, but then there's the reality of the situations. And when I say that to folks, they are blown away. How could that possibly be? It's possible because we depend on our property taxes to guide our fundings. And I know I'm not sure if this is where you wanted to go, Brandon, but but that essentially is one of the big demystifications that folks need to understand. The largely in this country, a school district is funded based upon the wealth of the local property tax value. So essentially, the greater the property taxes, the greater the school funding. When you align that with the work of the color of law, with residential racial segregation, what you get is a self-perpetuating system. So let's think about this. If a family is living in a low income area, their property taxes are lower. They therefore have a less resourced school. Their students go to that school and perhaps don't get a quality education, don't go on to college or trade, do not raise money to buy a house in a greater space. So they are left here and the cycle continues. Whereas a family who does own a home in a place with middle or reasonable wealth, they have a school that is fully resourced and they got opportunity to go on to do what they want to do. It's a self-perpetuating system. And that is to me is like the key lever. We need to disconnect the relationship between local property tax and local school funding. I see a web here and I'm trying to find a point in the web where all those things you mentioned in terms of property tax, in terms of how that impacts how much money is allocated per student and trying to connect that to, or see if there's a connection between how much money they get versus the kind of instruction they receive. So essentially, so it goes back to the whole idea of where these brand new teachers go. So if a wealthier school district has more money for their teachers, they are more sought after places to learn and to, and to teach at. So if I've been teaching for 20 years and I am really good at my craft, I could stay working in Philly school district, which is the average about $50,000 a year, $60,000 a year, 
or I can go teach out in the burbs and make a hundred. Where am I going to go? Through no fault of my own, I'm probably going to go to where the incentive is, and that is the greatest pay. So the school districts that are strapped for cash don't have the money to attract or retain the really effective seasoned teachers. So very often they leave out. And I, I, I again, we're surprised or we think we're surprised at situations that arise with, 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 with crime or unemployment or murder. We're surprised at these things, but then we don't actually invest in our children. We don't actually invest. And, and, and I know this sounds flippant, but I really don't mean it to be. When billionaires are going to space for fun and we have school buildings falling apart, we as a nation are getting what we deserve. We are not investing in our future, in our children, and we are reaping what we have sowed. And I'll say one more thing. I know this is dark, so I, I apologize. No apologies necessary. <laughs> so you could, there is a lobby or a rationale for folks to not invest in these schools. And the reason is this, and I'm sure you know, a prison is going to look at third grade reading scores to determine the number of beds they will need in prison. That's a fact. And, and, and because third grade is where we shift from learning to read to reading to learn. And if I'm behind in third grade, my trajectory is lower. The politician whose county or whose, whose municipality houses that prison, it is not in their interest to decrease the number of beds. It's not in their interest to have fewer inmates. So it's not in their interest to fund education of the, of the communities that funnel inmates into these prisons. So there's a darker, more insidious structure at play here. It's not just like, why don't we do these things? It's, it's more like there are reasons why we don't do these things. And, and, and that's why, one of the reasons why that federal idea of a national constitutional amendment creates that high bar of scrutiny that demands it and that's one of the reasons why it's so important. Yeah, no doubt. My last closing question. How does your text help support folks who want to make instruction more grade level, engaging, affirming, and or meaningful for students? It does it in a couple of ways, but I'm going to talk about one super specifically. And it's my favorite teacher move. And it's for when a student's not doing what they're supposed to do. So let's say that I give an instruction to open their books and start reading page whatever. And they start and I scan and I see that one student's not doing it. There's this very often in education, like we do things, then we later learn that there's a name for it. But so essentially what, what, what I did and then learned what it was called, it's called praise, prompt, leave. And it's a way that's trauma-informed, student-supporting, and minimizes exclusionary discipline and builds student relationships. So here's how it goes. I see that student not doing what they're supposed to do. I don't call them out. I don't get angry. I don't do any of that stuff. 
I circulate around the room. I come over to them. I get down on my knee, right? So we're on a level. I'm a kind of a big dude. I don't want any trauma in trauma triggering stuff of me standing over anybody. I'm going to get down on my knee and I'm going to start with a compliment. I'm going to start with an affirmation. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so glad you're in my room. What we're doing now is opening up the book to this page. I'm going to circle back around and check back in if you need support. And then I leave. I stand up and I recirculate around the room. I don't stand there waiting for them to do it, which is a challenge, right? I'm not going to walk them down the path of suspension. I'm not going to walk them down the path of exclusionary discipline. I'm going to circle back around, show them that I trust them, and I hold them to a high standard. And I walk around and 99% of the time, they're doing it. That is a very basic level of us providing pathways to success for our students that are grounded in love and respect instead of assuming the worst, playing into our biases and walking them down exclusionary discipline. No doubt. Can you close out, good sir, with a quote from your book that you feel like does a great job representing what you were uh, communicating as a, as a whole message in those uh, 70 pages? Sure. Yes, indeed. So long as the education system denies students their right to quality education, the work of dismantling broken systems and bridging the opportunity, equity, and justice gaps in American education continues. So long as schools are funded by zip code, so long as students of color face a school-to-prison pipeline, and so long as the least prepared and least experienced teachers are funneled into under-resourced schools, the work continues. The road is long, we will walk it together. you'd like to get more info on this episode's author, the featured text, and how you can apply your newly acquired knowledge within your profession, we got you. Check us out on the LP website at unbounded.org forward slash LP. You can also check us out on social media at unboundedu. This is Brandon White. Thanks for listening to the LP. Literature in Practice, where we take a look at texts and practices that encourages student instruction to become more grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful. Peace and progress. <laughs>